Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Dr. Grin Lord. Grin is a clinical psychologist and AI empathy innovator. She is the founder, CEO of Empathic AI, AI Empathy at Scale, and of Therapists in Tech, a collaborative of 3,000 plus digital mental health experts who are defining the digital health mental health revolution together. Grin was previously the Chief Clinical Officer of Listen.io, a clinical product psychologist at Uber.ai, and a research scientist at the University of Washington, where she studied the key ingredients in conversation that make therapy effective and promote change. Her areas of expertise include conversational design using machine learning to augment human connection, evidence-based therapy, and empathy. Welcome. Good to see you. Great to see you, Shawana. Thanks for having me. Hitting you with some rapid fire. Uh, I know you're into music like me. What was your favorite concert that you've attended? My my, I can tell you my last concert was in the Gorge and it was Stevie Nicks. Okay. If you could give a TED Talk on any subject, of course, outside of empathy, what would oh. it be? <laughs> um. Well, I'm a child and family board certified psychologist, and uh, it would probably be something to do with um, the family court system and like the dysfunctionality of it in the U.S. uh, and, you know, how to help families navigate that process. So I used to be a parent evaluator. I used to work for the dependency court and... uh, there's just a lot of things that parents don't know when they go into that process, both in the dependency court and in a civil way. So uh, I would probably do something about that and um, the impact that that has on families. Oh, wow. That's like a whole other podcast. Maybe you'll come back and we can do a different (laughs) one. That's amazing. I think I knew like little bits of that, but that's actually pretty fascinating. And thank goodness I don't need those services, but it's good to know in case I ever do. It's a, it's a huge field and um, the highest paid psychologists are expert witnesses in family court. Um, so it's, it's a big deal. Um, okay. If, <laughs> if you could um, have the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? I would probably say something related to to empathy being like one of the most powerful and important things that anyone can exercise and do like if we could all make an attempt to accurately understand another person or attempt to understand another person or have compassion for them like imagine their children as our children or them as us like that is a I think that's like the key to healing a lot of what's happening in the world. So I would probably 100%. suggest that. <laughs> well said. I could not agree more. Okay. Um, beach or mountains? This one's an easy one or maybe beach. hard. Beach. Beach. All, all no long. question. I get altitude sickness like oh, instantly well, after like, yeah. Pfft, beach. Done. done and beach. done. Um what is the first thing that you do when you wake up? I know it's not coffee. Um, no, it's not. I, uh, I grab my phone and start scrolling on TikTok because I'm addicted to it. Oh I no, Grin. I know. Um, I yeah. specifically am not on TikTok because I'm convinced I would be exactly in your shoes and 
totally addicted because it looks really cool. And don't do it. There's a lot of don't do it. Imagine how big my business could be right now if I didn't have TikTok. (laughs) The first thing I did was mindfulness and work out and like go through my priorities in the day instead. The gratitude journal, la Mm -hmm. la la. I get it. Yeah, nope. (laughs) Just pick up my phone. (laughs) Go on TikTok. Well, you could set limits, whatever. In your next in your next life. I'm gonna say something. There is something about accurate understanding and perspective taking with TikTok because anyone can put up a video from anywhere in the world and the things that you learn from that app like the different lifestyles and people and things that I've learned so much like on a global perspective oh maybe I should get on things it's it's truly amazing so yeah it's really cool okay what quality do you most admire in others uh, the first thing that comes to mind is like patience and I'd probably say second is like loyalty. Those are qualities I'm really good at too, not to pat myself on the back, but when I see it in other people, I, I just um, really appreciate that uh, about folks that, especially in the entrepreneurial world, when you see um, folks that put like their values first and remain like a good person and have integrity, even in the face of all these things. Like, yeah, I think maybe I'm listing too many qualities at this point, but I associate that, that behavior with like patience and loyalty. Yeah. I like that. Um, what words would your friends use to describe you? Probably, uh, well, first they probably say something to do with me being busy and like having too many things going on. That's a, a constant, uh, critique that I get but um something about being like funny or creative or like always doing random zany things I think is what would happen like people will my friends will say that's so grin and and I'm guessing loyal oh yeah I mean yeah if you look at my company right now many of the people I have worked with for 10 and 15 years and have followed me to like two or three different companies. So yeah. I think it's a mutual loyalty. Um, yeah. When there are good people in your life, you got to keep them. Yeah. So you're talking about like 10 to 15 years back, but I want to go even further back. And I know that I'm a lot older than you. So we're not going that far back like we would be if we were talking about me, but start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? And tell me a little bit about like grin the little girl and then like the fifth grade grin um I grew up in Minnesota in Minnetonka Minnesota and I've lost a lot of my accent well I moved to California when I was 16 so yes was raised in Minnesota um went to let's see at age probably 12 13 um my parents uh, decided to become full-time wildlife filmmakers and uh, moved into an RV full-time. Um, well, I'd say it was like part-time. We did summers in the RV and then they would do underwater. My dad would do underwater during the year um, and I would stay and do school. And then they converted full-time RV when I was maybe 15. Um, I went to boarding school in Switzerland for a year, came back, they had made that transition. And then I went to another boarding school in California 
and they traveled around in the RV making films, which sounds super awesome, like Wild Thornberry's style. But you have to remember at that time, that was like, they actually started doing that a little bit earlier just in the summers and you know there was no we didn't have smartphones um there wasn't wireless uh so i had like six vhs tapes like a crappy game boy eventually and so a lot of the time i would spend in these like rv parks for months as they'd be waiting for like a a mountain bluebird or something to come out and they have built a screen and they're waiting <laughs> you know and getting up at like 4 a.m and like waiting for this thing and i'm just this little kid like left basically alone in these RV parks to like find whoever the residents were and go around on ATVs or like go into broken down cars or like go down to the store. So I was just very independent and lived that in a lot of different like, places. Make money? Did they make money? Yeah. So the name of their film company was called Starbrook. Um, their films won uh, a lot of wildlife there's actually wildlife film festivals um won a lot of those awards it also won a french film award called the prix de public in this maritime film festival for their underwater films and it became the number one selling dvd for a few years because my dad did it all on digital film wow. and before dvd players were released um they had some early adopters that actually released the DVDs and our films were one of them because there just wasn't a lot shot on digital. So they started revamping old films and then they had a couple of new ones. So our films were like in Best Buy and like flying That's off the amazing. shelves simply because it was like the first um, instantiation of like a DVD. And That's then so obviously unique. that went away, but- um, How did they meet? Or, I mean, is that like something that they met because they had like that common interest or it kind of developed as through their marriage? No, no. So my dad was a tech founder um, and uh, that's a whole nother story. My dad could be a whole podcast. So he was raised in rural Minnesota, uh, had like a proclivity towards making bombs and like explosives and chemicals and things. And he made this little like chemical lab in a chicken coop in Hutchinson, Minnesota. Um, he later became a janitor for University of Minnesota and traded his salary for lab time so he could continue to develop things with like chemistry and like chemicals. And he invented this process of photo etching using photography to etch uh, like thin metal plates. And eventually his company um, developed the flywheel for hard drives uh, for, for all, all personal computers. Um, so, and that was called Hutchinson Technology. So his like tiny town in Minnesota that was previously dominated by a glue factory that later became 3M. So this is like a lot of immigrants came to work in the glue factory and um, my grandparents were part of that group. And then he, did this thing in the chicken coop in Hutchinson that later boomed into a huge industry and employed the whole town. And um, he had this massive impact there, but that was in like the uh, like late seventies, early eighties. And um, so he became kind of this like high flying eighties businessman and like was going all around. And like, uh, I was cleaning out his stuff the other day and I found a, a business card from Steve Jobs, like with the original like Apple logo, like he oh, was just my gosh. zooming around, like doing business deals. Like he became a tech leader from, from being a kind of a chemist, like self-taught chemist. And he met my mom because she was a banker and in, in part of this, uh, um, part of his business trips, um, as he was going around. So 
And so then this you kind was of had more a, their like 2.0 kind of like now we're going to well, be in wildlife. I mean, like, a, yeah, I think like a lot of tech founders when they have rapid success. So he, you know, that company uh, continued, it went public. He founded another software company that also got um, acquired. And I think he, he did what I think a lot of tech founders do, which is they have this like radical shift after they've been successful, like the guy that's doing that bioengineering, that 45 year old entrepreneur, that's like, now my body will be perfect. Like, I think my uh, dad kind of had a similar, like, I hate technology and nature is the only thing. So he just like rejected all of that and went hardcore into like nature filmmaking. Cause it still has that technical, a lot of gear and stuff. And he did like digital film, which at the time, you know, we had servers in our house that took up like three rooms because wow, doing well, doing digital early. I mean, now you can put that on like a thumb drive, right? Like it's like, there's no yeah. space, but like to do a tetrabyte of data, it was just massive to take these things. So anyway, had this technological bent, but he was like, I just don't want to be around people. I don't want to be around business. I want to be Let's underwater the with grid a little. Wow. Yeah. And, and and some of that also harkens back. I'm not going to get too deep into this, but he, he was in the Navy. He was a flight instrument instructor and he was one of the first people that did diving like with no instruments and like did a lot of underwater stuff. So I think he had this, like, I like being underwater. I like being a nature guy already. Um, but it had that, yeah, that technical stuff. So um, my mom and wow. uh, him like kind of, they're almost like business partners. I mean, obviously they're a couple, but that was kind of their thing to do was to, you know, go through my dad's businesses and then become, you know, wildlife photographers together. But it, it definitely That's wasn't amazing. like, he's not like super granola, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. not on did that they, level. Did they, um, well, I guess, uh, did they expect you to kind of, I mean, obviously you pursued the medical field, like a completely different path, but was there any part of them that were pushing you toward business? And like, obviously here you are as a tech entrepreneur. Um, no, that's or, so does, funny, that, right? does that surprise them or is it full like, circle? it's like full circle. Here you are. Uh, my dad really wanted me to go into chemistry. I think he was a little bit more literal than saying I need to go into business. He was like, Oh, the thing that sparked my business was like math and physics and chemistry. So you must go into that. And I'm like, dyslexic I really was bad at math I was I don't think I learned how to add until like third grade I, I went to this Montessori school that was very freewheeling and you could go like sit in circles and I somehow manipulated the system to never have math classes like I hated it so that wasn't gonna happen um but then I'm a very like I'm very inspired by people that say I can't do something so in high school he was like oh I guess you'll never succeed in that and it just like fueled me. And I was like, I'm going to go into AP chemistry and AP calculus and show him that I can do this, which I did like aced that. And then was like, I'm going to go into psychology now, you know, it was almost like a defiant. Yeah. yeah. I well, can do this, but I'm not. There's a million yeah. other ways to rebel. That's a good one. So I'm guessing you did well in school because you ended up at Whitman. How'd you choose Whitman? They sent me a box of onions when I got in. <laughs> <laughs> I got into other quote unquote better schools, I guess. Like, well, Whitman's I got a in... great school. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, then. But how it was did you choose? I mean, it's kind of random from Minnesota, like, or I guess California. I mean, how did well, you that choose? that time it was California. I, yeah, I got into the UC system. Um, I don't know. I was just like, my, I think my college counselor said something to me like, you could be a big fish in a small pond. 
or you could like watch your professor from a monitor, but they're going to be the best professor, you know, in the world on something. And like, do you want people to actually spend time with you and get to know yeah. you? Was that and, a good choice for you? Was Whitman a good choice? Oh my gosh. Yeah. If I could recommend to anyone listening to go to Whitman, it was uh, an incredible experience. And I got a lot of one-on-one um, an independent study to pursue what I wanted to do. It was, it was incredible. So mm-hmm. do you remember uh, the thought recommend. of like, I, now I want to pursue psychology. Like I thought that when I started school and then certain classes I liked and others, I just couldn't deal with. So I switched. Yeah. It's interesting. I did a double major in anthropology and psychology, and I actually wanted to be an, a medical anthropologist. So I, gravitated towards studying almost like the history of psychology or like how how are people human today like how do we constitute what like is a self like how do we heal the self how do we know what medical like it was very um comparative across cultures around like how they understand mental illness how they respond to mental illness what does it mean to be good what does it mean to be healed in those different cultures. So I did that from an anthropological perspective. And then my um, psychology focus was actually in dynamic systems theory, which bizarrely connects to a lot of the stuff I'm doing today with machine learning. But at the time, I didn't know it. Um, And that was also on comparative models of cognition and memory and just like theoretical understandings of like how memory works using different systems. Um, But the point there wasn't to do a memory study, it was to, again, do a comparison of how do different cultures and people think of the same concept, something so abstract like memory. So I've always been interested in interpretation, I think is my like through line through my whole life. Like how do people look at something and interpret it according to themselves, their world, their culture, and all the differences that come up with that. And and tell me, because I'm pretty fascinated by like, um, the path, if you kind of follow it, like I met this Mm. person and and that led to that. If I hadn't met that person at that class or that cocktail oh, party yeah. or dated that guy or whatever those things are that lead to or applied for that job, like just walk me through a few of those steps that led you to some of the successes. Cause I know you've had tremendous success prior to empathic, like those moments, you know, we've all had them. Yeah. So it's funny. Cause I feel like there's just something that like drives us to the place we're meant to be no matter how much we try to, to buck that system. Um, so with, uh, undergrad, I actually had applied to grad school at, um, university of Connecticut and university of Indiana in um, cognitive science, which was like a blend between psychology and computation. And I had this little crisis where I was like, no, I don't want to be in school anymore. And I left and went to become an au pair in Spain. Oh my gosh, what? That's so cool. A a jewelry company there in Barcelona for a year and and just really rebelled from that. And part of that came from, I was a part of a lot of like book clubs and research groups in college. And I noticed like I was the only woman in a lot of those groups. And it was just a lot of young collegiate men like arguing about different theories of mind. And I was like, eh, this isn't, I don't really want to do this. So I went to Spain. Um, and then I was deported, which is a whole nother thing that we can talk about. It's a longer story. It was very innocent um, documentation <laughs> issues. Uh, but I ended up having to come rapidly back to Seattle to stay with my mom. And 
uh, I eventually got my own apartment, but I really just like was lost kind of after college. Like I didn't know what to do. And I started illegally downloading scrubs on like LimeWire, which was like the file sharing thing at the time and like watching scrubs videos all day. I was like, I want to go work at a hospital. This is like, this looks funny. And so I started working at Harvard View, which is actually like our level one trauma center here in Seattle. And that was like the start of this whole journey was me being like, oh, this looks like a cool, funny environment. <laughs> I got pulled into working in the emergency department and the ICU and trauma care. And then, and we began some of the studies on empathy that became foundational to my research path where we learned about what it takes to listen to someone in an accident and a crisis and how that impacts health outcomes. Um, but yeah, when you're really young and in your twenties, like, I don't feel like I had a, a bunch of intentionality and drive towards, you know, I'm going to go to the best schools and I'm going to go. And this is my path. Right. I, Most I people definitely... don't. I mean, that's so uncommon. And I, I wish yeah. you could share that. I know you've worked so much with kids and yeah. As a mom of teenagers and so many of them are just like, how do you know? And it's like, you look around and you're like, none of us freaking know. Are you kidding? It's like, you know, listening to your story, it's like, well, I watched Scrubs and then I felt like that sounded kind of cool. And here I am. But it, no, it's, okay, like so, so, yeah. it's like awesome. So you're in the emergency room, but how do you have influence over someone hearing your ideas or, or getting inspired to... I guess have the, I don't know if it was your idea or someone else planting the seed around empathy. And oh, it was definitely not my idea. I was, was part of idea. a this, what has happened recently is is definitely my idea. But the I the concepts of studying like reflective listening and um listening to people are very old psychological concepts, right? I think it was, um, I think the principal investigator on that study was at first Larry Gentilello, who's a, a chief trauma surgeon at Harborview, uh, Chris Dunn, who is a, a motivational interviewing coach. And this was a randomized control trial where they were looking at the effects of doing um, a different style of listening that uh, was happening to folks coming into the emergency department after drunk driving accidents. And typically what happens is people give them a pamphlet and say like, shame on you, look at what you did, you need to go to AA. And this was this testing this radically different style of like, could I um, listen to this person and radically like accept them as a person and that, and believe that they are the only person that can change their life? Like, and that my job is not to change them or tell them what to do, but to listen to them and like reinforce some of those concepts and understand what do they want to do now with their life. And that style of empathic listening just had massive effects. It was um, uh, that 15 minute conversation or like limited kind of coaching session that occurred uh, ended up having impacts on outcomes for three years for everyone that got that one session. How do you know? Um, like, how did you measure that? Because I mean, obviously somebody's in the emergency room for a short period. Do you, yeah, I mean, it was a randomized like, hey, control like, study. Let me, let me track you. So, Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Yeah, it was longitudinal. Um, and they looked at drinking outcomes, uh, had massive impacts and drops on drinking. And it had, I think, a 46% reduction in readmission during that time. Wow. Um, the the cost implications when scaled nationally to the US were about $2.1 billion in savings because of that lack of readmission just by having a brief conversation and listening to someone in that moment. 
That's and amazing. I, you know, was at the right place in the right time as far as learning from these mentors, being a part of this research. And, and that was one trial of, of many trials that occurred uh, during the time that I was there. Um, and then and I, how, you know, continued you... to follow that path. Um, and I started training other clinicians and people nationally in how to do this form of listening. And so from there, um, you know, I guess that one path could have been to just stay there and stay in the hospital environment and just kind of let that be your 20, 30, 40 year career. Um, what was kind of fueling you, driving you, motivating you? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one, these uh, these studies are are time limited, right? Like they last for one or two or three years and then you go on to a, a new study. And the way that this was evolving is that we were learning from each successive study what worked in terms of changing other people's behavior because my job was to train other folks in empathy interventions. And we did these like two-day workshops and PowerPoints and we found that that didn't impact anyone. Like people didn't change their behaviors can't watch a PowerPoint, learn empathy, like wasn't working. So that eventually evolved to um, coaching. And there's this thing called the clinical trials network, which is the largest phone coaching study of this type of um, trying to train providers and empathic listening. And that was a highly effective study. We learned a lot, but it was very like non-scalable in terms of you can't coach every single doctor and therapist and listen to all of their you know recordings. And that's kind of where it started to change for me and shift out of like, I want to be a practitioner and I want to work with people individually into some of this, like, how can we expand scale and like take some of the learnings from humans and like really impact a lot of people. And that's where machine learning kind of started to come in is where I had been labeling um, recordings of, you know, providers and what what was good, what was bad, what needed to change and like identifying that. And, and you can train a machine to recognize those same patterns that humans mm. did. So that was like how I started to shift into thinking about these things differently in a research setting. Um, and then, you know, a whole bunch of studies happened um, around automating feedback and, and training and using computers and AI to, to help train folks in these skills. And I worked on that from 2008 to I think 2017 mm. and uh that research got commercialized into my first startup listen um which was like kind of another turning point of moving out of pure academia and into you know the starting to begin a commercial exploration of this mm -hmm. um but yeah I wouldn't say there was like a an intentionality in my part um because uh, research is you know, in academia, it is very top down, like your principal investigators, they decide what you're going to work on and, and you work on that. So until I had my my doctorate, which I didn't get till 2014, um, you know, you're kind of at the behest of whoever the researcher is in terms of what they want to do and how they want to run things. So mm -hmm. it's actually part of the reason I left academia, because I was like, wow, these skills can be used in customer service and, you know, HR and like, wh why are we focusing on this tiny little niche population here? Like, this is a big uh, area. Everyone needs to listen to learn with empathy. So I think for myself, I've always been drawn to scale and like how big of an impact can we make? And it was kind of a natural evolution of coming out of research and going into the commercial spaces where I was like, okay, now let's take this even further. Like, let's go to the next step. 
Yeah. So you did listen and then you had another startup, right? Uh, I, I worked at listen and then I left listen and joined Uber. That wasn't my, uh, I wasn't the founder of Uber. Um, it's a therapy chat bot. Um, and while I was there, I worked on conversational design and basically infusing the chatbot with all the things we learned from that research around what creates trust, loyalty, empathy, and conversations. Um, and we managed to do just really impressive work on the bot to increase um, humans' trust in the bot and the belief that it was listening to them. I think there are actually some published studies on Uber and the work uh, that we did there, which is really fascinating in light of you know, recent developments with chat GPT, um, where people felt as if they could talk to our bot and trust yeah. it um, more than humans sometimes. Uh, what did you like, find? Like, what was the net net takeaway as far as like, what led to trust um, with the bot? Uh, it, it is hard to feel that. I think some people felt like this bot doesn't judge me, humans judge me, so I can tell it everything. So some of the things that we would here at Uber, like that, um, you know, folks would be talking about uh, were maybe not the things that you would even bring up to a therapist. So uh, really uh, confidential and potentially even disturbing things that they were like, okay, a bot is not going to judge me for this and it will listen to me. And then from the conversational design end, it was really important to show very early on in the conversation that the bot had the capability of empathy, meaning that it could immediately accurately understand what the problem was mm. and it could listen and it could repeat that back, that it was attempting to get towards an understanding very quickly in the conversation rather than just like running a script or, you know, kind of giving you a decision tree of options or assessment. A lot of people love assessment too. Like they love to be asked questions. And oh, yes. But, but part of that is actually accurate understanding as well. Cause you're, you're, you're presenting back, like, here you are, here's the result. And yes. everyone's like, oh, it gets me. It Everybody loves me. that. Everybody yes. loves that. Yes. So a lot of these psychological apps, not just Uber, but many of them start with an initial assessment because it's that same thing that humans love, but which is like, oh, it gets me. It's showing me me. Like, and I agree yeah. with that. Or, oh, I don't like those little tests of understanding very um yeah. the beginning of an interaction with a, a product experience are um, really impactful in terms of trust and loyalty and yeah and we showed that in a lot of the a b testing of empathy that there were um big impacts on conversion on retention when um there was this perception of being understood interesting and so tell me about how you came up with the original idea for empathic and then um you mentioned a co-founder was that a like, hey, I found a co-founder and then we kind of whiteboarded potential idea or I found an idea and then I went out and found a co-founder? Yeah, so speaking of loyalty, like um, almost everyone that works with me in Empathic has come from one of my different past uh, experiences. So um, Tad, who's my chief design officer, he and I actually worked together in the university-based setting prior even to listen existing we both went on to work at listen and then we both went to empathic um nick who's my co-founder on the machine learning side i met at listen he also consulted for Uber, and then we also went to empathic um our uh, clinical team uh has also several people like megan who actually worked with me in 2006 in like some of the uh original empathy work at harborview so uh yeah, I, 
definitely for my co-founder, we had a long-term relationship, but almost for the entire team, uh, these are all people that are aligned around the same mission to um, prevent mental health problems through teaching people empathy like very quickly. And they all have that kind of um, pragmatism that is sometimes absent from academia around like, how can I get this out? How can I execute and create something that people can use instantly in their work stream, like low barrier, real doers. And those are the people that I think I personally work with the best and have kind of like followed me are people that are really passionate about that, that impact at scale. Um, so yeah, so Nick came uh, from Listen and then what happened was around the founding is pretty interesting. And so um, I was actually laid off uh, from Uber midway through, this is COVID, right? So it was um, 20, end, end of 2020. And uh, at the same time, my parents started to have some health crises. Um, my dad has Alzheimer's and we didn't know it at the time. So I actually needed to move him into memory care, but because of COVID, it was um, lockdown. And I, I moved both of my parents into my house. At that point, they were like survivalists in Northern Idaho and fully in wilderness mode. And I had to kind of extricate them from the compound, move them here to Seattle. Um, and they lived in my house. And during that time, I also had both of my kids. I have a um, uh, now six and eight year old, but I think my youngest was two and a half or something at that time, uh, maybe three. And I had a five-year-old like starting kindergarten and they all had to go remote. So they were doing like remote kindergarten on a tablet. And I had these two people. Anyway, it was just, I felt like I couldn't get a job. Like I felt like I couldn't go back into the workforce and be reliable because I had so many caregiving duties. So somehow in my mind, I was like, oh, this is a great time to start a company. But it really was that I was like, I can be in control of myself and like my schedule and I can innovate something in the hours that everyone's asleep. Like basically from 9 PM to 2 AM, I can build a company. And that's when I started to realize like, okay, I want to take all every lesson that I learned from my academic years and figure out how can I train people in empathy instantly in the workflow, like no workshops, no um, annoying long trainings, like could they just get a correction and training where they're working in their Zoom meetings and their emails and their texts and whatever. Um, but in order to do that, I would have to build a data set from scratch um, to do to build the machine learning models. So I created this empathy training game during that time that my parents were um, at my house called Empathy Rocks. And uh, therapists could get continuing education credits for playing this game that taught them basic listening skills. They would respond to anonymous folks on the internet seeking support and use different empathy skills to respond to them. And then other therapists would rank those responses and get corrections, things like that. And I built this data flywheel of um, labeled data where the thousands of therapists were playing, getting continued, continuing education credits for playing and then building out this great data set so that I could put like a line between my academic and my prior work and kind of start fresh. Um, so that had to be built. I was part of Pi, which is the Portland incubator experiment, which I'm not in Portland, but during COVID they did it remote and they are really supportive of women and people of color. They don't take any equity um, as part of being in the accelerator. So they supported me through developing that game. And while I was there, uh, 
we kind of reached a turning point around, okay, we have enough data to, to build this Grammarly for Empathy thing. Like we can start to move that along. Um, and then Empathic was born. So that's amazing. So you say, so you say Nick and build. So is he the builder or you're the idea person? Mm -hmm. He's like an engineer. Yeah. He's an engineer, a machine learning engineer. Um, wow. I'm the domain expert psychologist. Um, yeah. He builds all the models. I do uh, the data annotation, data structuring. Um, Some of the product you know, stuff. The and so IP around the labels. Yeah. Interesting. And so the original business, the, the Empathy Rocks stuff, um, how is the business different since kind of the original Empathy and Empathic being born launch period? Yeah. Um, well, the data flywheel and Empathy Rocks in some ways is still very important. This idea of acquiring unique data and labeling it is, is part of what separates my company from some some of the other companies because we were able to build our own models uh, and really what exists in the market right now, and I don't mean to be hyper-technical <laughs> by our things like sentiment detection, where it detects are people having a good conversation or bad conversation based on buckets of words that are like good and bad. And what a lot of products were doing is they were using sentiment detection to drive tips and prompts and empathy training. At the time, actually, a lot of real-time correction didn't exist, but that that was kind of the modality. Whereas our models take things in really from a behavioral level, like, are you doing reflective listening? Are you asking open-ended questions? Are you being confrontational? Do you have rapport? How are you building trust? Um, you know, we have, I think at this point, 100 different behaviors that we model. A lot of those coming from the evidence based on psychology, but others coming from things that we've learned in commercial spaces. So it's evolved from Empathy Rocks in the sense that now we have enterprise partners that are uh, where we have data from uh, manager 360 feedback reviews from um, sales calls from uh, pharma trials from, you know, like so many different data sources. And we have a team of like 30 or so psychologists that sit there and analyze that data and feed that to Nick and he builds the models and then we can like That's automate amazing. that. So it's and kind of like the... having a psychologist in a, yeah, oh, in a yeah. machine learning model. That's very cool. And so what's the business model? Like how does the company make money? Yeah, so all of those models are packaged into an API. Uh, we have a B2B business. Um, you know, it would be awesome if we had direct to consumer and you could have empathy in everything that you do, but we sell to those platforms and businesses uh, so that mm -hmm. they can offer that feature for you. Um, just, and for, so, is it just for employees or for customers, like dealing with like, what's the use case or it seems almost endless. I think that has been the uh, main critique uh, in some ways, but also the main strength is that it's super horizontal. So instead of going for segments, which we do go for certain segments, we go for a particular persona. And that is this idea of the chief product officer who's like an analytics um, buyer that would is trying to enhance their, their product um, in some way. So are they currently grabbing models off of hugging face? You know, could they grab our models and plug those in so they could see a dashboard of every good and bad thing that their employees were saying or doing or their sales reps or whatever. So that's the analytics use case. And then we have other folks that are using this in real time messaging. Um, so you can think of uh, like therapy or coaching 
could get prompts on how to stay on target in real time by integrating that into their platform. Uh, same thing could happen in chatbox uh, as well. Wow. So it, it has been a challenge on where to focus, um, but we have found that uh, the sales cycle goes faster when we know the right buyer and don't focus so much on the application in the vertical. Our um, our models are pretty robust in what they've been trained on at this point. You know, it's not just the Empathy Rocks data, but they have enterprise data. So we can do some model adaptation for use case, but a lot of times we don't need to adapt. They can just take the, the API and get met metrics on empathy, synchrony, collaboration, curiosity, um, confrontations, you know, and plug that in and in a score level in terms of zero to 10 for like their whole company or team, as well as at the sentence level, you know, really pinpointing here's where it went wrong. Here's your highlights and lowlights. Here's how to improve them. And this is exactly what to say to improve it the next time or that's amazing you know, doing that in real time. So it's really from the, the company down to the, the sentence and our API is optimized for that sentence level, granular, actionable insights. So it's an API, and then we sell it in terms of annual contracts to SaaS platforms. So they contract with us, they have a platform fee, and then like the unit is the API call. So it's utilization-based contracts. So for example, if you are a SaaS platform and you say, hey, I want Grammarly for empathy in my messaging, we send 2 million messages a month. Um, like we would price, you know, fractions of a cent for those calls, and then they, they sign an annual contract. So that's that's how it works. And is there a minimum, does it have to be um, an annual contract or can they like try it out? Most of our large businesses want to do a single channel rollout, um, you know, like for this group or this particular use case, and they'll do that for a few months and then roll into an annual contract. It, yeah. We're we're integrating into their platform. There is a, a test period. Uh, sometimes that can be fast for more agile companies and for companies like We've seen just a lot of traction in sales where they were looking yesterday to predict the outcomes of um, sales calls and like who's what's more likely to happen and how to help their top performers perform even better or improve some of the lower performers. So that's been a recent new application that I yeah. set, set out to do, but has um but that makes really total sense because the ROI on that for any company is like it already paid for itself before they've even purchased Empathic. It's like done and done because the amount that they can make off yeah. of that by the sales, you know, obviously that makes total sense. And so is there a size company that's like the minimum that makes sense for your business to partner with? Like the amount of uh, um, seats, I guess, that, that are bought? Our lowest... Uh, uh contract um size is is 120k a month that's or a, a year that's the platform fee so that pretty much stops a yeah. lot of small seed stage companies from from using us that being said some folks are interested in being data partners with us where they'll say look can we use your tech and like we'll do an arrangement here around data usage and labeling and model building and things. So we have made exceptions mm -hmm. to that for cool early adopters with neat data sources that we want to work with more in a, a partnership way. And if companies are like, I love this, this is amazing. I can totally see, um, I can totally see this. Obviously the market's changed a little bit where they may have been psyched and now people are watching their balance sheets a little bit more around this time of year. But what is, what is the pushback Ben, if they say no to the contract, is, is there any big brother pushback of like, I don't want you in our systems. 
Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, we don't actually try to sell to companies that aren't already improving or recording conversations in some way. Um, I actually, I think it would be really negative for companies to deploy this in a big, big brother way, um, just to like observe performance of folks. Part of how our app works is we give the real-time corrections to them. Like it's, a, you improve personally. Um, like you're getting the feedback in real time as you're sending messages and you're altering your behavior based on that. Let's just say for a chat-based or mm. text-based um, use case. Uh, the only time where we've been deployed in a big brother sense has been when it's really focused on um, healthcare, like fidelity monitoring, mm. like we're being used in some FDA trials to ensure that delivery is happening exactly as it should. And in that sense, everyone is consenting to the process of, we want to adhere, we want to be safe, you know, we want to be recorded. Um, so yeah, for me, I like to work with companies where, again, we're selling to the platform that's already doing the analytics. So there's no pushback around mm -hmm. like, no, well, almost every company, <laughs> people, I mean, yeah. even from like three years ago to now, everybody's interested in data and performing and getting totally. a competitive edge and, and looking at the AI and, and all of it around their business. Is there, um, I mean, obviously but, AI is the big subject right now Yeah. Uh, with chat GBT. And I mean, just it's, it's changing at such a rapid pace and we're getting, um, we have so much business coming in right now from companies that are in the AI space. Um, how, I guess, well, A, do you have competitors? And B, how are you differentiating yourself when, you, when you're calling yourself an AI company? Like how deeply are companies pushing back and how much do they even know about AI? Are you educating them on AI? Yeah, all of those are really good questions. Lots of questions. So Lots of questions. I, I'll say this. So let me just speak first to the climate. So um, we've been using GPT-3 to create novel novelty in um and tailoring in the way that we give our corrections um, since 2020. So when ChatGPT came out, it was like, oh, yes, there it is. It's been in our product for a really long time. But what's really cool is that for some buyers that were kind of, uh, I want to say like skeptical or foot dragging, that happened more in like HR SaaS where we're saying, hey, look, you can write something in a 360 review that says, my manager is horrible. And not only will we detect like, ooh, that's a confrontation or like that's toxic, that's bad and give you a tip to rewrite it. We will completely rewrite that. And recently we just expanded our tech to be able to take that and not just give a tip, but fully have a generative rewrite of a performance review. And if you just do that in GPT as it is now, it will start to get repetitive. Like you'll get the same thing. Um, over and over again, or it could start to do something a little bit like off and not totally correct. And so where it's really cool that we come in is we built all these proprietary models to detect the different behaviors. Um, and we add layers around GPT to prompt it. Um, like we detect the one behavior, transform it to another behavior, and then prompt it to take that into like a third behavior. Um, it's hard to uh, think about, I'll, I'll use the manager example. So something where my manager is horrible, we might prompt uh, to have uh, it not only detect, but then say, why don't you describe what the problem is, um, assert like what you need, 
uh, reinforce the other person for listening to you, uh, like things like that, where we'll like really carefully craft a, a paragraph for them that they can then accept and reject. So originally when we went into these sales cycles with HR SaaS teams and we were like, look, generative rewrites, like completely remove the cognitive load, like feedback's now suddenly reinforcing your product is edgy and cool. And there was a little bit of like, whoa, this is sci-fi. This is weird. I don't want it writing for me. I want everything to be written by the person. Even if it's a bad piece of inactionable feedback, I would like it to be written you know, by this. And since the launch of chat GPT now, those customers are coming back and saying, totally. wait, wasn't that in your, th like now I want, now I want the generative. Everybody wants so, a piece of it. Yeah. So now they're worried about falling behind and they're like, yeah. oh my gosh, everyone's going to put a uh, GBT in their product and, and my product doesn't have it. But what they are coming to realize is you can't just plug this thing in. You need expertise, you need modeling, you need safety around that, which is what um, OpenAI did with chat GPT. They had you know, um, I don't know if you saw that story about like Kenyan laborers being paid $3 an hour to put layers on top of GPT before they would allow it to be released because it was so um, problematic and unsafe, some of the things that it would say. So we've been doing that for two years already. We already have a lot of boundaries around this thing. And so now suddenly we've just gotten an influx of people being like, wait, you your API isn't just Grammarly for empathy. Your API right. is injecting generative AI into my product and putting compassionate human emotions and making it safe. Um, so we're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of using human experts to put boundaries around GPT. And then the detection part is the hardest. Like that's the part that's all our proprietary models. GPT is not so much, um, but those, those boundaries and using the domain expertise to get exactly the kind of things you want is, is what we've been doing now for two years. So, so you're, like totally, you're actually totally ahead of the curve. It's super exciting to take advantage of this exact moment. Have you, have exactly. you gotten any feedback that there's been um, any positive um, impact from partnering with Empathic on culture? I'm more thinking like employee engagement stuff, like empathy from like, employee to employee manager to employee is that a use oh, like case in... for empathic like yeah like if if i was inserting empathic within my company to have all of the employees constantly i wish i could give you a demo right now i would show you how this works in like a chat for employee and manager feedback but yeah it I don't know the outcomes on that, but that's definitely a use case. You can use it's it. It's definitely, yeah, chat. like that's endless. I mean, obviously you can't be all things to all people because um, I mean, I don't even know where your salespeople would begin and end, like who they're targeting, but I would imagine that that would be an incredible use case just because um, it's so expensive for people to quit and rehire. It totally is. Yeah, And no, turnover, I mean especially right now. Um yeah. So I'll I tell mean, you where, yeah. where we're being deployed in that capacity um, more recently is um, in two areas. And one is in manager state interviews. We're evaluating the empathy that's occurring there and ensuring that the managers are being empathic during those uh, stay interviews to try to promote retention. Um, the real-time use case to me is the most interesting as well, but people are wanting to like have almost a um, benchmark to compare all managers against each other and ensure that mm. they're improving um, over time. The other thing case that I was thinking of was um, a span of control issues. So with the layoffs, a lot of what we've been seeing is that 
managers are having um, brand new staff, brand new burdens, whether that is in that they've just had to lay off staff or that now they suddenly have double their direct reports. Mm. And we've been looking at the impact of those recent changes in organizations through a uh, conversational analysis, like mm. are managers getting more frustrated um, what's the impact on employees when that happens? Um, mm-hmm. over time? Or even empathy around onboarding. Yep. So many people feel left out and they feel disengaged from their co- new company. And they're just like, well, I don't really care where I work. I'm sitting in my dining room anyway, behind a computer. Companies are having a real struggle because in the past it was like, oh, I serve bagels on Friday and we have a ping pong table and you know, we do oh, yeah. all these things. And now companies have to get really creative with how they sell their culture. And some of it is like, they're only making decisions on like how they can impact um, the product or what the managers like that they're reporting to. And if they can't feel that energy and they don't totally have a good onboarding experience and it's not a kickoff that like rocks from the beginning. Um, Cause that person is just like disregarding them or isn't like, is like, you know, not empathetic to the fact that they may have to drop their kid off at school or they may have a sick parent or whatever it is. Totally. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. oh, this company's cold. Well, that might not actually be the case. It might just be like a cold manager that day or whatever. I don't know. It's it's interesting you saying that because what I think you're pointing out is that the value of these kind of Zoom calls and conversations is like really high. It's like one of the only ways to communicate culture is it's so hard we're we're sitting in our our own houses um one of the metrics we use is synchrony it's a um i call it the lie detector test of of empathy like you really know if someone likes you if you're ranking high on synchrony and it's how they align in their language style over time so if you really like someone you start to use the same words as them oh totally you pause in the same way you put the same adverbs it's like very unconscious like how much you can start to align and when you were talking, I was like, you know, we should use synchrony as an early indicator of how that onboarding, how those relationships are going. I'm just curious also about your strategy around, um, I know that you value diversity and inclusion. That's a huge priority for you and your company. Um, how do you um, vet for somebody being a good um, addition to your culture. I don't like saying culture fit because it implies like more of the same, but like a culture add. Yeah. Um, so yes, we do take DEIB really seriously. I think we were the first pre-seed company to produce a um, pay trans pay equity uh, report transparently. And day one of our full-time hiring, we brought on a director of DIB, which is typically seen as a later stage investment. Um, so yeah, we've uh, been investing in that since day one, both internally with the culture, but also in the way that we build our models. Um, so uh, there are a lot of issues with AI bias and part of the reason why we source our own data and curate it and have mental health experts um, label it is because we don't wanna train our models on patterns in the past um, and repeat those into the future. So I think we approach it at two levels, both from like the product and the AI level, as well as like internally in our own culture and modeling a lot of the things that we wanna see empathically. Um, And then trying to be a leader in this space for seed stage companies because it is, 
it's a sad trend that I think because of funding and other reasons, people make a choice not to invest in that early. Uh, they mm -hmm. want to wait until they get product market fit. They want to wait till they're a profitable company. And then they're like, okay, now let's look at diversity. And then it's too late. Like you've already built your senior leadership team. You've already made critical decisions. And like that needs to be there from day one. Right. On the flip side of that, though, a lot of discussion is around like people overarching on um, hiring for diversity first and like not necessarily skill set second, but like thinking about a culture ad, there's so many ways of looking at diversity, not just diversity of like ethnic background or um, sexual orientation or sexual preference or any of that, but more like diversity of thought, which usually is linked to those yeah, things. But I mean, just we diversity of thought is like, how you make sure like you look at the company and say, hey, what are we missing? And sometimes it might be a white male, you know, and that is diversity also. I think we we think about it in terms of intersectionality. So reducing people to one trait is also difficult. Like yeah, if you're using the example of like a white male, like that person probably has a lot of other characteristics too. So every totally. single person like at, the company has an intersectional form of identity. And um, to your question about like, how do we vet for that? Uh, we have our mission vision um, values in our, you know, job applications. And like one of our first uh, values is for example, anti-racism is like listed number one. So you're probably not gonna apply to our company if uh, you are like, oh, anti-racism, no. <laughs> you're not going to make it in the door because you've already seen like, this is it. And then um, in our interview process, we actually have a lot of questions, not necessarily about needing to think in a, a certain way. Like, do you believe in XYZ concept on diversity, but more to do with self-reflection. Like we have questions around um, like, tell us about your culture and like how you want have you experienced being in organizations like in terms of your culture and people are, that respond to us? Like, I don't think about that. I just do the work. Probably not going to be a fit for empathic. I love in that. Part, so it's just people have like, a growth mindset. They're open to feedback. Exactly. They're open to understanding, self-reflection, creating mm -hmm. other people's cultures and learning. Exactly. I, I love that. And, and we don't expect you to be like a trained clinical psychologist that's taken tons of classes on like these different thought processes or like social workers and people that we have in the company. Some people have never encountered thinking in these ways or talking about themselves in these ways. So like they meet with our director of DEIB as part of their onboarding process. And we make like a, a growth plan for them in part because our organization is super interdisciplinary. We have clinicians, we have machine learning, we have data engineers, we have engineers, all of them speak like a different professional language and all of them have totally different training. So having that ability to frankly be empathic and like understand another person and their perspective and have some common language to talk about the product is really important as well as making space for personal growth. So um, that is just, you know, what happens when you have a company run by a psychologist? Like there's oh, a lot of, uh, yes. there's a, lot, <laughs> there's that a other, lot of that. There's a lot that other startups could learn from you. Is there anything um, that you want our listeners to know about Empathic that we did not cover? No, other than that we're totally open to um, 
you know, folks that are looking to pilot something like this in their company, if they're saying, okay, I want my product to have more empathy, or I'd like to differentiate in the market by having real-time feedback, we would love to talk to you. Um, so, you know, we are an early company. We are at the seed stage. We do have customers, but we are still doing a lot of discovery and learning and want to reach out to anyone that's like wondering, how could I do this? How could I improve my company, my product in these ways? So I think, I you know, that. having that conversation, we're totally open to that. Awesome. And then um, I know that you've also, um, either, I know that um, I read about therapists in tech. Yes. What is that? Um, oh my gosh, that's a whole nother thing. So uh, in that same time during the pandemic, I also founded a, a nonprofit called Therapists in Tech. Uh, it didn't start in that way. It started as a Slack channel with a hundred thought leaders in digital mental health, all clinicians. Um, now we're over 3,000, almost 4,000 members. Um, I'm no longer the director. I've, I've stepped back in that capacity so I can run Empathic, but Jacqueline Satchel, uh, is the director there. And uh, our mission is basically to help transform the digital mental health landscape by bringing in the clinical voice and then upskilling and training therapists that previously haven't had business experience or work in tech and helping them to enter these spaces. The majority of digital mental health companies right now are actually not founded by or created by people that have expertise in that area. So we want to change that and we want to bring more people that are stakeholders and that understand clinical problems into digital health. Um, so we do a lot of education, a lot of focus groups, a lot of mentoring one-on-ones, and we're formalizing that process to create, um, you know, again, we have a job board, we do job matching, uh, but, and I think majority of our members are women. And I think we have... I need to look at this statistic. I think it's over 70% people of color um, that have never, you know, been in tech before, but are eager to join. And there's just, you know, been a mental health boom. So we're trying to help them get into positions where they're not, um, I guess, being used as almost like uh, Uber drivers of therapy and just doing sessions back to back for these large companies. But how can they get into strategic positions? How can they actually shape these companies and, and learn skills in that way? Um, so that's, that's therapists and tech. Wow. I've, I don't even know how you have time for all this. I, I don't. Jacqueline does that now. I'm not, I, well, I'm not I doing know, that. But seriously. <laughs> so I'm guessing this is all nine to two. You're still sticking with that. How are you spending your free time? I know that you're like the badass poker player and that you're doing that. Like, yes, <laughs> I'm going to come to your next event. So you're playing poker in your free time. What do you do? I mean, I guess since we're talking about mental health, how do you keep your mental health strong because I know that it can be lonely and stressful to be a founder of a company. I mean, that's true. But if you look at my background, you know, I was in the emergency room at Harborview <laughs> focusing on PTSD. I worked for the dependency court where I literally had to remove kids from the family. Like, I don't even tell you about the nature of those cases with child abuse. So like, this is pretty easy compared yeah. to being a clinician. Like, like I'm I not got that this. stressed. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's, it's isolating being at the top, being an entrepreneur. I, yeah. I get it, but um, like, I'd take this any day. Over yeah. And I, know, I, know, I know you said you started it so that you could have some flexibility, but the irony is you're probably working more and harder than ever. Um, yeah. how, how do you stay balanced? No, I don't know. Uh, if I didn't have my uh, partner, like doing basically being default parent and doing the majority of the parenting for my kids, it would be really tragic. Like he's 
incredible in terms of meals, childcare, school. Um, you know, I have a full-time nanny. I had to have a full-time nanny even when I was at Uper, which meant that I broke even basically. Like, yeah, you can't, you can't be successful as a, in tech without like making sure that all of, you know, your stuff at home is, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the um, mothers that I know in tech, you know, go bend over backwards to ensure that they're available for their companies. And I always like find it funny when um, someone will be like, you know, some guy will be like, oh, I'm, I'm taking off early because I have to do pick up and drop off. And I'm like, yeah, I could also do that, but I yeah. have arranged. So, so ironically, a lot of the like mothers I hire have, have that like buttoned down. And like, I, I barely hear about like their child stuff and all the different things they're juggling. They've just like made it work. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to find balance after, uh, after this project, you know, yeah. uh, reaches well, yeah. its logical conclusion. But yes. right now, I, I think it's, it's full on board. Ongoing. Yeah. Well, you're yep. kicking ass. My final question for you is what fuels you? I mean, is it is it too cliche to say empathy? <laughs> I was like, cliche. she's definitely going to say empathy. Totally not cliche because it's it's defining you. Right. Totally. And, it's, and it's something and that means something to you. And how cool is it to do what you love and love what you do and it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. 